Welcome to Create New Futures, a show about thought-provoking ideas and practices you can use to create and shape your future in life and in business. Join Aviv Shahar, author and innovation strategy consultant, as he shares his proven strategies that have helped clients create breakthrough results. Aviv has guided executives at Fortune 100 companies, and now he wants to help you. Welcome to Create New Futures, where we develop conversations with successful leaders and entrepreneurs to explore how you can create new futures for you and for your organization. This is Aviv, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Eric Holzappel. Eric is an entrepreneur who has used mindfulness to transform his life and business and help others do the same. Eric has a PhD in economics. He has been a real estate CEO and developer for nearly 40 years. He guides clients in how to operate mindfully while improving business results. And he's the author of Profit with Presence. Eric, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's a privilege. Let me begin by asking you first, what is the high point of a typical week for you? Boy, it's almost always, you know, if I have the opportunity to make a difference for somebody, to help them see something they didn't see before, a different way to operate, to get better results with less stress, you know, and just be happier. And what is the inner passion and uh, motivation that propels that kind of experience for you? You know, it's just presence. It's just I find if I can be there present with someone, that's an automatic passion that I have is to actually to help them. You know, it isn't something contrived that I have to work at. I just find that's my humanity that comes through. So natural presence, natural humanity is a novelty factor in business. It can be, you know, if you choose it. I mean, mindfulness to me is basically focus that I can focus on what I choose to focus on and not everything else because I can't focus on everything. And focus is so powerful in business. You know, our ability to focus on what we want to me does create business results. So I see it to be totally compatible with business. Well, so can you unpack these two ideas, mindfulness and focus? Where are they overlapping because people will save mindfulness to have a broader context. And at the same time, you say there is a way to bring that awareness. Yeah, there is. I mean, just having a background of presence or awareness is one thing. And you can have that without focus. I get that. You can just kind of be more, you know, and aware in a broad context. But that isn't useful. I mean, it can be useful for an individual just reducing stress and those kind of things. But in business, we also have to produce results. And so I find within that mindfulness or presence is an ability to focus. You know, it's a broader big mind context, but also the ability to zero in. And when I mean zero in, I mean zero in on what I choose to zero in on. And that's what we practice is how do we focus on what we choose to versus 
everything that's coming at us because we have so many things coming at us in the modern era from, you know, from our phones, from advertising, from everything, from news medias. I mean, it's just we're barrage. So I need to be able to focus on what I choose to focus on to be successful. So that's what we practice. And that's what I found to be really, really impactful in business. And at the same time, with that focus, I can still have some peace and calm and joy from just a broader mindfulness mindset. So I read in between the lines, two, possibly three modes of being. Let me say back to you what I perceive and tell me whether I'm on the money or not. First, that there is more an open-ended sense of presence that's more somatic-based and is not anchoring or not focusing on any particular item and is more a sense of balance and well-being in the fact of being here at this moment in time, mode one. Mode two, that that space can actually be taken more into a mindful mapping where I become aware to all the moving elements in the theater around me, the people, the items, the urgent, the important, and I'm able to witness all of those In the Air Force, we used to talk about this as seeing the whole theater. And the third one is that you can, from that second one, choose to focus on any one item and zero with great intensity to the exclusion of all else. How would you reframe? I think that's right on. And it's not that we can't or even don't want to multitask. Multitasking is essential in some ways, but I can't focus on everything I'm multitasking on. I need to focus on something. There may be still some other things going on, but I need to be able to focus on what I choose to focus on to get a desired result. And that may be just being with the person I'm with at the moment or doing what I'm doing at the moment, right? But it doesn't mean there aren't other things operating in the background because we do multitask, but I can't focus on all those things. Well, my discovery 41 years ago as a fighter pilot in the Air Force was that there was no such thing truly as multitasking. What that meant was you were moving your attention quickly from one item to another. And then there is the delay factor or the noise you bring from that one item to another. And that's where multitasking truly was proven to be a bogus engagement. So you are bringing this practice to clients, to business leaders with the idea of truly engaging, laser-focused. Tell me more, how do you coach that practice and what is it that you find that people struggle with in terms of assimilating the practice? Yeah, almost universally, people struggle initially with just, I mean, for instance, we do meditation and everybody doesn't have to do meditation. There are other things, but in our programs, we do meditation. And almost universally, people struggle with meditation at first. And one thing that we do with it is we start with really small bites, like two minutes of meditation, because the mind is so busy and so erratic when you first start, it can be daunting. It can most some people just go into their into the meditation and go, God, it's just making my mind so busy. I just can't do this. It's driving me. Well, 
in most instances, they just haven't noticed that the mind is, you know, we have some 6,000 thoughts a day. The mind is going like that. So people struggle initially just with sticking with it in a slow bit. But after a month or two of doing just a couple minutes, things start to slow down a little bit. They find a little peace in it and they can pick up. And what we're trying to get at initially is a separation between those thoughts and who we really are. I mean, we're the ones looking or evaluating the thoughts, having the thoughts. We're not those thoughts that are in there. So once you get to that period, and it takes a little bit of time, it can be very relieving and very stress reducing to not be associated with all the thoughts in our mind. Those can be going on, but I can operate from a different place. Discovering the eternally truthful fact that you are not your thoughts, you're not your feelings, you're not your emotions, you're the vessel with which they manifest, but you are not to identify with any of the above. So, and that takes some practice because, you know, this isn't how most of us were raised or, or focused on, you know, we've just been raised with this totally cerebral approach to life. And so, and it takes for a lot of us, you know, it's been 30, 40, 50, 60 years of operating one way. And then we say, okay, I'm going to shift gears and operate a different way. And the other thing, the struggle is it's just impatience that it does take a little bit. It isn't an instant, oh, there it is, you know, maybe one moment, but then then it's gone again. So it, it does take a little bit of practice to be able to do that. And then the practice is mostly noticing when I'm there, present, and when I'm not. And on my best days, I come and go, you know, I get lost in it like anybody does. You're describing a culture and ethos where, especially throughout the 20th century, you could even say earlier on, the industrial mechanistic scientific paradigm brought us to live very much in our own heads and not embrace the bigger picture of life. And now you're describing a conditioning whereby people are scattered in their thoughts and they actually think that they are their thoughts. That's the pathology you're trying to address. That's the pathology that we're up against, I think. Really, I call it a cultural lie because we've been trained to think producing and consuming things is everything. And I love business, so I love producing things and I love consuming things. But they're not a purpose in life and they don't bring happiness, in my experience. You know, happiness comes in those gaps. Living in the gap is those gaps where one thought stops before another one starts. Those little gaps of joy and noticing, you know, things or a brilliant sunset or whatever it is. It's like, ah, you know, it's those little gaps that bring us peace and joy. I love business and it's been a total, I mean, we've totally increased production and what human welfare and things. But even so, I think we all know people that are very rich, have all kinds of things, yet happiness remains elusive, you know, and other people that have nothing and are very joyful. So I just say, I want to have it all. I want to have those things and I want to be happy. And the only way I've found to do it is to not reside in every little thing like that. I have to reside in a larger state. And I still love to do things, you know, and I love to have things and produce things. But it's not where I look for my meaning in life. So describe a little more the idea of the gap and its place in your map of meaning. What is the gap you're talking about? And what is specifically the gap you are living into right now? 
Well, the gap I'm talking about is that is exactly what we talked about before is realizing that we're not our thoughts. You know, we're observing the thoughts, hopefully, and then we can start noticing the thoughts slow down a little bit and that there's a little spaciousness at times between them. And even when they're going on, I can reside somewhere else. I can reside in a place not tied up in them. And that's the gap, the little gap where I'm not my thoughts. Hopefully that one stops before another one starts There's a little bit of a gap there. And that's when I can start noticing a disassociation between myself and my thoughts, a little separation. Oh, there's not a thought there. I'm still here. Oh, as a matter of fact, wow. You know, I feel joy. Look at that sunset. Ah, look at that beautiful scene, whatever it is, you know, laughter, whatever it is. It's not usually anxiety and stress reside in the thoughts that we're having about things rather than the thing themselves. So living in the gap is an invitation to discover the space, the presence, a ground you can be rooted in before and after your thoughts, before and after your feelings, and something that's nourishing rather than taking away from you. Yeah. And even during those thoughts and feelings at some point, you know, you can have those go on and still be residing somewhere else. I don't think that happens initially, but as you go on further in it, I think you can notice that and still be residing in an underlying presence that is just satisfying and joyful. So what does it mean? Being a mindful leader, a mindful business owner, how do people bring this kind of practice in your experience effectively into their work, the rituals they conduct with their teams, their way of doing and being with their clients and so on? Yeah, initially, I think it's best to keep it pretty private. You know, we have a very skeptical society, skeptical world. And I don't think it's something that you have to broadcast. It's just a different way of operating and being like, for instance, you know, just following your breath can be a great mindfulness, simple mindfulness practice. And nobody else knows what you're doing. You're just following your breath. And my breath brings me into presence. I think the first thing is to, you know, achieve before you share and have some stabilization of practice, whether that it ends up being formal meditation or other practices that allows you to be aware and present. The best way to share is after you do it for a while for people just to notice a difference in you and ask you, you know, what's going on? How come that doesn't bother you when that, you know, division is down a million dollars for the quarter? You know, why aren't you upset that somebody didn't show up? Why aren't you reacting like you used to react? Also, I think, you know, you just notice different people. Like with our company, we just started with one or two people that shared it. With, I mean, I was just a private meditator for years and just came in. People didn't really know what I was doing. And then I might share a book, something with somebody. And then, you know, there's an opening. And then we started in our company, a seed group, started with just two or three people. A monthly meeting with uh, reading a book and maybe doing a little centering practice kind of things. And, you know, six months later, we had a room full of people that were just interested in it. And the stress reduction, we're so stressed in the society. I mean, before coronavirus, before all that stuff, we were stressed. And then it got like squared, you know, that we just got on steroids with stress. Yeah. And anything that we can offer our employees, I think, and our families that 
will reduce that stress is typically welcomed. Now, I would say is it doesn't mean that everybody in the company needs to meditate. You know, hopefully some will. But when you get some more mindful people around, it's contagious. And yeah. It doesn't have to just everybody doesn't have to be sitting on a cushion and meditating or those kind of things. It's very helpful to have, you know, half a company or something to do that eventually that are doing some practices. But it's contagious. So there are really two conditions that you're trying to solve to. The first is what you describe as the scattered, fragmented, anxious preoccupation with thoughts. And that's one pathology or one condition that you are solving to with the practice of mindfulness. And then there is another layer that rides on top of that, which is when a person is triggered or polarized or upset or is in active conflict. So you've described so far how it brings a certain centeredness and a place of serenity in the gap between your thoughts. What are you learning? What are you discovering in yourself and also in the people you coach and guide in terms of the second conditioning, mm -hmm. which is when somebody gets upset, polarized, triggered, activated, how would you invite them in those conditions to find the gap? Well, and I found this true for myself and for others, oftentimes those are blind spots that we really don't actively know that's our way of being at the time. And that's how other people know us. Like I had an anger issue and I still get angry. You know, it's just part of me. Sometimes I get angry. I used to use it as an operating method to get what I wanted. You know, whether it was at a closing or with kids or whatever, you know, I, I could notice my anger element. Once I became aware of it, I made a commitment to myself that that isn't how I wanted to operate. If I couldn't, you know, convince people this was the way to do things, then I didn't need to get my way. And my anger didn't stop right away. And in fact, as I said, I still get angry, but now I notice it and I don't always react that way. Sometimes I have a quick response and I just need to apologize and take a walk or something. But other times I just see it coming. I just notice it and I go, ah, just take a breath. Yeah. So you've developed attunement to the somatic cues, the somatic yeah. signs as they appear. And before Engear manages you, you diffuse or you at least manage Engear safely without hurting too much the people around you. And you find a way, you know, when you get into mindfulness, it, it's awareness, doesn't solve every problem you have, but then you find some ways to get some feedback. And as you get feedback, then you can take things on. Oh, geez, that's how I'm doing it. You know, sometimes it's just carrying a notebook and notice when you do it and write down and whatever it is. And just, just an intention not, you know, to take these issues on and be mindful of them. Initially, I think, you know, you see it and you can't stop it coming. Then you catch yourself halfway in and you stop, you know, and that eventually you can, with practice, you see the train coming and you get off the track, you know, <laughs> before. And, you know, I'm not perfect, but I'll tell you, if I do it, I clean it up. I take myself the task of going and making the apology, you know, and making it right. And that also trains myself not to do it again, because I don't like doing that. I don't like going and apologizing for something. I'd rather do it right the first time. So when I follow through and do that, I'm training myself to, hey, you know, that's not how you're going to operate. Operate this way. 
What is the central idea of profit with presence? You know, the central idea is really like this essence would be happiness with focus, that we're happy first, that we've been trained that we go out and we do a lot of things like we get a good education, we work our butts off, we get that good job, we go for the family, we get the house and the second house, and then someday we get rewarded with happiness, success, satisfaction. And what I have found is that's not really what happens. If we train ourselves those way, when we get that house and that Maserati and that other thing, normally our training just gets us to want more. We just set the bar higher and say, hey, I need a bigger house. I need two of those cars and I need a vacation in the Bahamas. And there's nothing wrong with any of that. I don't have a problem with any of that. What I'm saying is if we can flip it around a little bit and be happy first and just be happy and grateful for what we have, I have found that success is easier to achieve because people would rather deal with somebody that's happy. You're going to get more calls and more business if you're someone that's decent to deal with. And I find that you see more opportunities if you're not disappointed all the time that you didn't get exactly what you wanted. You stay more focused, more aware, and you see other things that happen. So Profit with Presence is saying, you know, let's get our operations right. Let's be happy and let's take these mindful, intentional actions for intentional goals that we set. I'm a goal. I believe in goals. I believe in visions, those kind of things. I'll take these mindful actions and those mindful actions are what sets my karma. It may not be exactly what I visioned or my goal is, may even be better, you know? And the downside is if I don't even get exactly what I want, I was happy, you know? (laughs) I was happy, which is why we set these things out to begin with. Why did we want the job and the money and the family and all those things is for happiness. So I just say we flip it around a little bit. And it's not that we don't want those material things. It's just not believing that that's going to be the source of our purpose and our happiness. Well, so this is your third P. So you've got the two P's, the profit and presence, and then you bring purpose into it. So where do you place purpose in your map of meaning? You know, inner purposes and outer purposes. Inner purpose is, you know, about being present, about realizing that I'm conscious and that I have thoughts, but I'm not my thoughts. That's my primary purpose is to be with the people that I'm with and doing the things that I'm doing. And my outer purposes are my doings. And I try to find out the things that I'm really good at and that I love to do and focus on those. So can I be, and no matter what I'm doing, can I be present and decent person while I'm doing it, whatever I choose to do? Where do you place in this the idea of service and how is service important inside this? First of all, it's, I mean, the science on gratitude is irrefutable, how it just changes the brain, dopamine and mirror neurons, everything happens when we're in gratitude. We start looking for things to be grateful for. Services is gratitude in action. It's even another level because we're actually taking action in it, not just thinking about it, but actually we're demonstrating our gratitude by service. And the other thing is that I found so important to success is what I call the precision effect. Recession effect is the world operates more at 90 degrees than it does in straight lines. For instance, bees, when they're going to make honey, right, the 90 degree angle they have is, boy, they pollinate all the plants. They pollinate all the flowers in the world. 
Similarly, like some of my most successful business ventures have come from nonprofit ventures in which I got to know other leaders. Like I spent a lot of time at the university here with Habitat for Humanity, with other things, economic development boards and other things. You get to know people on a whole different level when you're working in that thing and things just happen and come your way that are positive and you're with other givers that are around these things and good things happen. You're setting your karma. It isn't always, it's counterintuitive to a lot of people. They want to say, once I make it, I'm going to go give of myself. My finding is normally you've trained yourself. No, you won't. You might, you might write a check or whatnot, but when you actually go and give of yourself, you're setting a karma, you're setting things in action and you're out in the world moving things and things come back to you. If you or I are on a board and all of a sudden it comes up for you and you need an office space or a house or something else and we're going for coffee, you just mention it. And I don't go there looking for that or the reason I do it, but those things happen all the time. My life has just been filled with blessings that have come back to me from the most unexpected places. And the relationships that I've gleaned with service are so much tighter than just transactional relationships. It's a huge part of success. Now, it's not the only way you can be successful, obviously, but it can be a really valid business strategy and make a big difference in the world. You're describing that unless you run a completely touchless application online, most business is being in the business of relationships in the first place, because even in this automated online virtual remote world, we have still people doing business with people. And I have found that I'm in real estate, real estate developer, build things, and been through probably four major downturns. Relationships in the downturns are where you get your callbacks. <laughs> you know, when it, times are down, those relationships just come in at the best times, you know, that you think you don't have a friend in the world and the phone rings, you know, and things just happen. Those relationships are really what gets you through thick and thin. So, Eric, how do you organize your priorities in the diverse areas of interest and passion? Awesome. This is my favorite. I think you have to have your priorities straight. So, for me, number one is my mindset. So, and I do a morning routine because that's the start of my day. So I do a morning routine of some meditation, some mindful movement, gratitude, reading 10 pages from a, you know, an inspirational book, those kind of things to get my mind in gear. So I call it baseball, this thing I come up with. So that's home plate for me is getting my mindset right in the morning. The pitcher's mound is life. And I don't know what they're going to pitch. You know, that day something's going to come. I don't know what, if it's going to be a curveball or a floater or whatever, but life comes at me. I want to have the right mindset when I step out the door. First base for me is family and friends. I want to make sure my family and my friends have what they need for the day so that when I get to work, I can focus on work. Can't tell you the times you walk down the hall and people are on their Facebook page or texting or whatever that they haven't really handled their personal life. And they get to work and they're distracted. They're not focused. For me to focus on work, I need to know that I've taken care of my home. I do that and I make sure. It doesn't mean I never go to work without something there. Of course I do. But I make sure that my family and friends have what they need for the day. So I don't want to go to second base, which is work, until I touch first. 
Do they have what I need? Because if I go to work, it doesn't matter. I can have the best job in the world, millions and millions. If my family's a mess, I'm a mess. You know, it's not going to matter. I want that job to support my family, my friends, and my love, my home life. So then I go to second base, which is work. And I want to focus 100% on work while I'm there. I'm very focused. People say, I don't have time for mindfulness. Then you're not focused. Once you're focused, you get so much more done in so much shorter time and waste so much less time. If you don't believe it, just chart your time for a few weeks on your calendar and see how much time you're wasting. So I go to work and I focus on that, get my job done. And third base to me is community service. I don't go to community service until I've taken care of my home life and my work life. Then I can go out and try to save the world. But if I'm out saving the world, and my family's not taken care of, or if I get fired from my job or screw that up, I'm not going to be much use to anybody. So I handle it, family, friends, business, and then community service. And I just say, if I can do all that, it's a home run. You know, and if I can load the bases, it's a grand slam. I can do it all. Looking back at your professional journey, if you could change one thing to rescript one experience, one moment, or one choice, what would you change? What would you rescript? You know, that's a tough one because if I change much, I may not be with my wife of 31 years or, you know, have the three brilliant kids that I have, you know, if I change much there. But I would say the one thing I would change was, you know, I would have quit drinking a long, a lot earlier than I did. <laughs> I quit drinking when I was about 50 and I could have quit when I was 16, you know. So I dragged that ball around with me a long time. And even through 10 years of trying to meditate through it and all that. And when I cut that ball and chain, let go of that, a lot of other things opened up for me. So that would be the one thing. So with all that you know today, what advice would you give your 25-year-old self? Yeah, work on mindfulness and mindset first. The other things will come into line. You know, get your mindset right. And do what you got to do to take care of your personal space. You will take actions to be successful. If you were to lose all that you know and keep only two ideas or two practices or two skills, what would you keep? I would keep mindfulness, which is my key to my inner peace and to my relationships. That's the hidden bonus of mindfulness is how much it improves your relationships. The other thing I would keep, and I don't think I could get rid of it. I wanted it was just my work ethic. You know, I was raised working and I love to work. I love business. I wouldn't want to get rid of that because I get so much joy from it. So as we bring this to lending, Eric, what parting wisdom would you offer to people listening to create new futures? Just to give up the story that you don't have time to be mindful. And it doesn't, I'm not saying everybody's got to do meditation or yoga or anything else. There's a lot of avenues to it, but find something that lets you be present because your kids and your spouses and your workmates, they know when you're present and when you're not. You know, you may not know it all the time, but they know it when you're not listening. So I would say to give up the story that you don't have time for it and find time for it because your focus and your efficiency will increase so much and your happiness will increase so much. It's worth making the time for. And it does take some time and some commitment. I'm not saying it doesn't because our society's not wired for it yet. Hopefully it will be one day, but we all need to put our shoulder in. I mean, we got a lot of problems facing the world. And I believe business is the one that's going to get us out of it in the end. It isn't going to be the politicians or the 
broadcasters or the news media, the business people are in the end are going to say enough of this nonsense. Let's move this thing along. We can take care of the people, you know, and have a great life. Yeah, powerful message there. And it's a curious one when you ask people to give up the story, because typically to give up a story, we need to have an alternative new story. We find it very difficult to move from having one story to having nothing, to having a void. And you are offering a story of living into the gap, connecting with presence, and realizing the potential to be in yourself tethered to something other than the destruction and the anxiety of the moment and recognizing that in that space you can make tremendous impact on your life, the people around you, and including clients and partners and all the various circles of people you're influencing. So thank you very much for sharing this message. It's a privilege to be able to come on and share it. So thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening. Aviv always encourages his clients to identify the one or two ideas they can move forward into action immediately. What will you capture and apply today? You can always begin with a small action and then build momentum over time. When you move forward from an idea to action, you get immediate ROI, return on the time you invested, and return of learning. And then the learning cycle builds the success propulsion. One more thing. You can reach Aviv directly by phone and email to discover how he can help you create a new future for your business and organization. Creating your new future can begin today.